Good morning and um, welcome to Christ Community, our Olathe campus. My name is Chris. I have the privilege of being the student ministry pastor here. If you're a visitor, I'd also like to welcome you here this morning and to reassure you that we're not crazy, all right? We know that it's just the end of the year in a couple of days and not the end of the world. Maybe, right? Because it could end in a couple days. There's a part of me that's honestly, I'm kind of hoping that it'll end in like a couple of minutes because then I won't have to stand here and preach. And I know you're all laughing because you're like, that's a nice idea. I'd rather not listen to you either. Yeah, we're not crazy. We know it's probably not ending in, in the next few minutes. Um, I don't know if, you, if you're here this morning, too, and excited about the fact that we're coming to the end of the year and the end of the open here uh, reading plan, or the, the one that takes us through the Bible, the whole story in a year. Hopefully, you're not excited because you're like, thank goodness that is done. <laughs> Hopefully, you're a little excited because, yay, I did it, and now you feel like you can keep going. But it is kind of cool that we're coming to the end of the story. The Bible is the whole story, and, and the book of Revelation is the end of the story. I grew up going to church. Um, I grew up, but not just going to church, I was what was called a twicer. Do we have any other twicers? Yeah, you know, Sunday morning and Sunday evening, you know. You know, if you counted church attendance towards righteousness points, I was pretty awesome. Although, I'm not sure it did me a whole lot of good because I was always in trouble. But the church we went to, we had a pretty amazing preacher, or so I'm told. You know, um, I usually tuned out. Um, you know, one reason I think is because he, it was, it was a long time ago, adults were the people who were preached to. Kids weren't really taken into account. The kids didn't have their own thing going on now. And we're trying to do a better job of that, including kids in, in our services, but they didn't that much. And so I would tune out. The other part of it, honestly, is I just had no attention span whatsoever and didn't bother trying to. And I know some of you are like, yeah, man, that's me. I hear you. The difference is, though, is I was nine. And some of you guys who are agreeing with me right now are parents of nine-year-olds. <laughs> all right? So work with me just a little bit, all right? And, and I'll try and work with you. <laughs> exactly. But when the pastor started preaching, I tuned out, but I didn't just daydream. A lot of times I'd grab my Bible or the Bible that was in front of me and I'd start reading it. Not because I was super spiritual or anything, but because there was a lot of cool battle stories and like kings and the judges. And I also like to read the book of Revelations because it was weird. Like, have you ever read the book of Revelations and you're like, that's in the Bible? John spent a little too much time out in the sun in Patmos without drinking water and kind of lost the plot. The book of Revelations is weird. And because it's weird, I thought we'd play a little game just to kind of get us in the mood this morning called Revelation In or Out. And so I'm going to show some pictures, and you're going to take a guess on whether it's in or out. And if you think it's in, raise your hand. If you think it's out, you'll raise your hand after, and we'll see kind of where we stand. All right? So first one, in or out? Is it in the book of Revelations or is it out? Is it in the book of Revelations? Raise your hand. Is it out of the book? Is it not in the book of Revelations? Raise your hand. 
Nobody thinks there's Navy SEALs? Well, I'm trying to be a little tricky. Seven SEALs, right? Seven SEALs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a scroll in the book of Revelations that has seven SEALs, and every time a SEAL is broken or opened, um, an apocalyptic event or judgment is released. Okay, so now you kind of figured out how I'm going to play this game. You know, I'm the youth guy. I like to trick people. You know, let's go to the next one. Is it in or out? In? Yeah, everybody, okay. It's the Pale Rider, right? Clint Eastwood from the Pale Rider. It's the fourth of the fourth horsemen, and each horseman has a different color, and the color is connected to the kind of woe that he brings, all right? And the Pale Rider is known as the, is known for what? Bringing what? Death, right. Which is why Clint Eastwood is such a good match for the Pale Rider, right? All right, next one. You guys are laughing, but I could have found a lot more disgusting pictures, and even like the moving ones where it actually shows someone throwing up. I decided to scale it down. Throwing up, in, in or out? In? Yeah, it's probably one of the most preached passages from the book of Revelations, the passage to the, to the church of Laodicea where, where John writes that God is going to spit them out because they're lukewarm. You know why? When you're really thirsty and you want a cold dry and it's lukewarm, it's kind of gross. So that's that passage. All right, fourth one. Ooh, creepy lamb. In? In? Anyone says it's out? It looks creepy enough that you'd think it's out, but that actually probably makes it more likely that it's in. Yeah, a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. The horns represent the judgment and power, and the eyes represent the omnipotence of God. And I actually kind of picked this picture because the lamb looks kind of creepy and deranged, but kind of happy, doesn't he? He's kind of like he's got a weird smile. He's like a dog, yeah. It actually kind of, since the lamb is supposed to represent the Messiah, I picked this one because a lot of times the pictures are depictions of Jesus, kind of make him look creepy and weird too, don't they? Just like this lamb. Nathan has showed some with his sermons. There's just a lot of weird pictures and understandings of Jesus. But the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes is in there. All right, next one. Vincent Van Gogh with a ginormous ear. In or out? In? Out? A whole lot of people not voting. All right. (laughs) He who has an ear, let him hear. Yes, that's what that one is supposed to be. I don't know how you're supposed to get that. I was just feeling weird when I came up with that one. But that is in there. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's in the book of Revelation seven times in the first three chapters. It's a phrase that Jesus said a lot as well. It means if you've got to hear and you, if you've got an ear and you can hear, you should listen and obey. All right. Last one. Bottomless pit. Real bottomless, right? In or out? In? Yeah, you kind of. They're all in at this point, right? Yeah. The bottomless pit. Revelation chapter twenty, verse one. Satan is thrown in a bottomless pit that's hopefully deeper than sixty-five feet. Where he's, kept, where he's kept for a thousand years so he can't torment the nations. All right? And we could go on and on like all morning with just weirdness from the book of Revelation. There's a lot there. All right? There's a lot of debate over the book of Revelations and what it's all supposed to mean as well. And, you know, we have this chart that we kind of have, we're laughing about as a teaching team that should it bring some clarity? No, probably not at all. You know, Revelations explained, not really. You know, 
The front end of it is maybe understandable, the back end, but as you see, you read through the whole book, and it just gets weirder and more confusing. And it gets more confusing as more trumpets and dragons are introduced. You know, it's not it's a bit of a coincidence, not really a coincidence there. You know, the beginning makes sense, the end in that whole place in the middle, yeah, not so much. The book of Revelations is confusing. I'll admit it. I'm glad I'm preaching the last two chapters and not that middle part, you know. Um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But we want it to make sense because we demand as people, we demand a story that has a coherent, understandable ending. And this one doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But the book of Revelation is a fitting end for a complicated book, for this book. It takes all of the symbols and all of the ideas and all the themes and all the prophecies and questions from the Old Testament and gives it a fitting end. And part of our challenge, though, is that we interpret the book of Revelation with all those symbols and imageries based on our context. Instead of marinating ourselves in all those symbols and imageries, images that John's readers would have marinated themselves in. And so instead, we draw conclusions based on our own context, trying to make sense of it. And the result often ends up being a movie like that A Thief in the Night movie. Do anybody remember that? Like flying scorpions and lawnmowers that are left running with nobody at them. And if you're a little bit younger, maybe the Left Behind series, good old Kirk Cameron. Anybody remember those? And don't get me wrong, the movies, they're entertaining, but I think they missed the point. The main point of the book of Revelation is not about when Jesus is going to return or how he'll return or even what will happen before he returns. The main point of the book of Revelations is that he is going to return and what will happen when he returns. And so the book of Revelation is actually not that much different than the rest of the Bible. Not that different than the story we've been reading all year long. The book of Revelations ends the same way that the story began. The book of Revelation ends the same way it was promised with Jesus and how the Gospels begin. The book of Revelation ends with God coming to us. And in Revelation 21, as the whole book is coming to a climax, we read in verse verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The book of Revelation and the story of the Bible ends the same way it began. In the beginning, after God speaks creation into existence, he declares it's good and and we read that he... um, He makes humankind and he declares them very good. And in Genesis 3, chapter 8, we read that God is walking in the garden, enjoying his creation in the cool of the day. He's enjoying what he's made and being in communion with it. But he's also, in in that moment, in the very moment when his very good creation has turned its back on him in a selfish act of rebellion, God seeks out Adam and Eve... He comes to them. He goes looking for them. He doesn't let them stew in their guilt and their alienation from them. He finds them, desiring to share his presence with them. 
The book of Revelation and the story of the Bible end the same way it was promised with the Messiah and how he would come, the same way it was with Jesus. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Paul beautifully and forcefully states this idea in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, when he writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus came to us, became like us, to dwell among us as one of us. And here in the final chapters of Revelation, we again read a familiar story of God pursuing his people to come and live and dwell among them. Not to be a distant and unfeeling God, but to be a God who loves his people up close. It's during this time of the holidays, I think that we, we can understand the significance of presence, can't we? You know, we can have friends and family over to our homes quite often and spend time uh, with people and sometimes overlook just the value and importance uh, of, of presence. But somehow during the holidays, presence, the importance of it and the value of it is heightened. In a culture and in a time of history, when we don't even have to be together to have a conversation, we don't have to be together to have a relationship or to be friends. We can have a face-to-face conversation without being in the same room, thanks to technology and thanks to the internet. It's during the holidays, though, that we're reminded of the significance and the power of presence. Even during the holidays, that annoying uncle that you don't like the rest of the year, you love having him around. Because we love being present with people around the holidays. And so when God comes near to us, amazing things happen. When God came near to Adam and Eve, he covered their sin and their shame by making them clothes. They had tried to do it with clothes made of leaves, but God came to them and gave them the first technological upgrade in history by giving them clothes made of animal skins. And in doing so, the sacrifice that he made, the sacrifice of those animals to make those clothes was God's way also of pointing forward to the future of a a better and new sacrifice that would come that would cover up their guilt and shame for good. When God comes near to us, amazing things happen. We celebrated that this week. The Savior of the world is born in a manger. Shepherds who are at the bottom of the social ladder in terms of of importance are the first people to herald the arrival of the king. The sick are healed. The hungry are fed, the dead are raised to life, and sins are paid for. And when God comes near to us, according to the book of Revelation, amazing things will happen yet again. When God comes near to us, heaven in the form of a new Jerusalem will come to us. So according to the book of Revelation, we don't go to heaven, heaven comes to us. And one of the main texts that's often used to talk about the fact that we go to heaven is First Thessalonians 4, verse 17, where it says that some who are still alive will be caught up in the air to go with Jesus. Let's be honest, you know, as a kid growing up, thinking about going to heaven up into the clouds, I wasn't that excited. Anybody else with me? Maybe you thought of heaven kind of like this Far Side cartoon. Oh, wish I brought a magazine. You know, sitting up there with your harp, singing songs the whole time, doesn't, doesn't sound that exciting. 
We got a bit of a misperception of what heaven is going to be like. According to the book of Revelation, Jesus and heaven come to us. And this is an idea, actually, that I think is really consistent with what we've been reading the last couple of months going through Paul's letters. Paul never writes and says that God is going to rescue us and save us from our suffering, remove us from this earth so that we can have it easier. He says that we should have joy in our suffering, so that in our, in our joy and suffering we might point to God and bring Him glory in it. When God comes near to us and dwells among us, amazing things are going to happen. And this idea that God will dwell among us is all throughout Scripture. The word that John uses uh, here for dwell, uh, the Greek word skeneo, sounds a lot like the same Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament for the word dwell as well, and means to tabernacle. The tabernacle was the physical place where God dwelled among his people. And when God dwelled among his people, they received a promised land after being delivered from slavery uh, from Pharaoh for 400 years. When God dwelled among his people in the flesh as the Messiah, he gave his life as payment for our sins. And the promised land of the new Jerusalem was prophesied to us. And so when God comes near to us and dwells among us, as Revelations tells us, he will do four amazing things will happen. First, we will become his people. Second, all pain will be wiped away. Third, all things will be made new. And last, when God dwells among us, evil and sin cannot. First, when God comes near to us and dwells among us, we will be his people. The idea of God coming to us and dwelling among us or tabernacling among us is all over Scripture. One of the clearest references is is in the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel says that if the people of Israel will keep his statutes and keep his rules, then God the Father will establish a covenant of peace with his people that he will keep forever, and he will forever dwell among them, and they will forever be his people, and he will be their God. This idea occurs again in John chapter 1, verse 14, where John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Jesus came and tabernacled among us and does so today in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, even though we're supposed to believe and remember that he is dwelling among us right now and tabernacling among us right now, I'll admit it doesn't feel like he's here. Sometimes it's a long time between my experiences of his presence in my life. And worse, sometimes I have dark days when I feel that he can't love me at all because I'm such a disappointment to him. You know, one of the worst times uh, like this for me was my, when my family and I found out that we had lost our visa um, when we were living in England. And we lost our visa and we were told that we had four days to leave the country. You know, and... We thought we were going to be gone for a couple of weeks before it got sorted out. And we ended up living in Chicago, four of us in one small bedroom for three and a half months. Wondering why it happened. Wondering where God was. 
feeling completely lost, uh, feeling like he was distant to us. But when God comes near to us, and, you know, I'm struck by that statement sometimes. I, it's so easy to overlook. God comes near to us. The, the very idea is dumbfounding, isn't it? God loves me. He loves you. He loves us enough to come to us. The creator of the universe comes to me. He seeks me out when he has every right to demand the opposite, that I should pursue him. Instead, he relently, relentlessly pursues me. When God comes near to us, we will be his people. Never again will we have to doubt his nearness. Never again will we doubt his love for us. Never again will we feel lost and alone. We will be his people and he will be our God. When he comes near to us and dwells among us, we will be his people and we will have new communion with him. Second, when God comes near to us and dwells among us, all pain will be wiped away. John writes, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And at the end of the book of Revelation, this is the, the other bookend from the very beginning of, of where the story started in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve find out that because of their sin, there will be pain and suffering in birth and in life, in every act of living. And here we find at the end of the story that it will be wiped away. And this verse echoes of Isaiah 51 verses 10 and 11 where Isaiah says, Was it not you, God, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall attain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In the first verse of Revelation 21, we read that the sea will be no more. And so just as the sea will be no more, so there will be no pain and suffering and death. And the result will be, as Isaiah describes it, gladness and everlasting joy. And the holidays are a time of great joy, aren't they? And celebration together. But for many, they're also a time when we're reminded of the pain that we have experienced in the last year. Of of friends and family members that we've lost of sickness and suffering, or just not having a job that we want to be in, or being underemployed, or not being employed at all. And when I look around the room this morning, I see a lot of families who have enjoyed an amazing year and are richly blessed. But I also see families who have struggled with so much, whether it's been struggling and failing marriages, um, cancer or illnesses, lost through death, Many of our families have not been spared this year. And even if you have been, we live in a, we live in a city that is being uh, ravaged by failing schools. In a city that's ravaged by homelessness, there's 1,100 kids and teenagers in Olathe alone that are homeless right now. We live in a city that is ravaged by significant and growing levels of poverty. We turn on the news and we see stories of corruption and crime and violence in our city and in our state and all over the globe. 
And so it should be with great hope that when we read this passage, that when God comes near to us and dwells among us, that pain will be wiped away. There will be only there will be no more tears, only joy. There will be no more death, only life. There will be no more mourning, only celebration. There will be no more crying or pain, only everlasting joy. When God comes near to us and dwells among us, we will have new life. Third, when God comes near to us and dwells among us, all things will be made new. Tom Nelson, our, uh, our senior pastor, has a great way of making sure that we understand this statement. He likes to say, God making all things new does not mean that God is making all new things. God made a creation that he thought was good. He made a creation that he loves and, he, and still loves today. He's not going to destroy what he loves and start over. He's going to make it whole again. He's going to make what is lost found, what is broken whole. He's going to give us back what we have lost. In Genesis, we lost a garden with two worshipers. But in Revelation, we will gain a city filled with worshipers of every tribe, tongue, and nation. In Genesis, we lost a garden in one corner of the earth that was filled with, God, with the presence of God. But in Revelations, we see we will gain a city a mile, miles wide, miles long, and miles high, filled to the brim with the presence of God. In Genesis, we lost access to the tree of life. But in Revelation, we see we will gain access to a tree whose leaves have the power to heal nations. In, Revelation, in Genesis, we lost a garden um, because we chose to side with a snake. But in Revelation, we see we will again gain access to the very reign and rule of God. When God comes near to, uh, near to us and dwells among us, what he first made, his creation that he declared good and that he loved and still loves will be made new. It will be restored. It will be healed. It will be made whole and it will be redeemed. Last, when God comes near to us and dwells among us, evil and sin cannot. And we can go back to the tabernacle to understand why and how this works. The, the Day of Atonement was a really significant day in the Jewish calendar. It was a day when the high priest would go before God and the Holy of Holies after making sacrifices and performing the necessary rituals to atone for the sins of the Israelites. But in order to do that, the, the high priest had to be physically pure and pure of heart. And if he wasn't, a price was paid. If he wasn't physically pure and pure of heart, he would die. Because God cannot and could not, cannot and could not stand sin and filth in his presence. That's why Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden when they sinned. God and sin just can't be in the, physically in the same place. His holiness wouldn't allow it. God's presence changes people. So that's why when Moses was on Mount Sinai, just from talking with God, we see that Moses comes down the mountain and his face is shining like the sun. God's holiness is so powerful. In fact, that in Exodus 33, it says when Moses is on the mountain and asked to see God's face, God says, no, you can't, you won't survive it. But instead, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock as I pass by. And as I pass by, you will only see my back. 
God's holiness is so powerful, so pure, sin can't be in the same place. Thankfully, that barrier between us and God, though, was removed through the life and death of Jesus. Jesus, God came near to us, and on the day that Jesus died, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the common person from sin was torn in two because our sin had been paid for. We, we then, the people then, had complete access to God. So when God comes near to us and dwells among us, just as Jesus was able to forgive sins, cast out demons, and raise people from the dead, God the Father will eradicate sin, fear, anger, selfishness, and hate. You know, earlier I, I told you how alone that I felt and how alone my family felt when we had to leave England at a moment's notice. And the same strength and fearlessness that we had in, in moving there and making an intercontinental move um, was very quickly gone. And many nights we spent laying there wondering where he was. Laying there, I got sick as a dog during that time. I ended up getting pneumonia with no health insurance and even came here and interviewed for this job while I was sick with it. Because... We didn't know what we were going to do. We felt like we had no hope. Feeling like God was absent. Feeling like everything was out of control. And there wasn't a thing that I or my family could do about it. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel the same way right now. Maybe you look around you and you feel like, while everybody else's life looks perfect, yours is just spinning out of control. Maybe you feel weak and you feel hopeless. And guess what? Compared to him, you are. But he isn't. He is powerful. He is working. He is in control. And sin cannot and will not stand in his way. When God comes to us and dwells among us, sin and evil cannot. And there will be a new kingdom and a new reign without sin, without death, without hopelessness. A kingdom that will have no end. And I don't know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, that's, that's great, Chris. That's great for whenever that happens, but what about right now? Are we just supposed to sit and wait? Not at all. Jesus taught his disciples long ago and is teaching us today what must happen today. In Matthew 6, he taught his disciples how to pray. And he prayed those familiar words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus in this prayer didn't just teach his followers and didn't just teach us how to pray he gave us our mission to bring heaven to earth in bits and pieces today so that those bits and pieces would point forward to a future when God the Father would come to us again and dwell among us, bringing with him the fullness and the completeness of his kingdom. So we're to live in a way that points forward to that new communion. We're to live in a way that starts to get rid of pain and suffering in the world and the community around us. We're to live in a way 
um, where we become new creations and our communities become new and are made whole. We are to live in a way where sin and fear and hopelessness can't stand to be around us. Jesus' birth celebrated earlier this week was a signpost pointing to the future of dwelling with God the Father. His life was a signpost pointing towards the kingdom that we are to help usher in, one pointing to the fullness of the kingdom that his Father will bring. His life is a blueprint for how we are to live every day. To live loving others fiercely, loving others relentlessly, laying down our lives for others, making ourselves less so that he and his Father's kingdom can become more. N.T. Wright uh, wrote, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. We are to colonize earth with the life of heaven. The story ends the same way it began. The same way it was fulfilled with Jesus, with God coming near us to dwell among us. Him pursuing us in love. And when he does, we will again be his people. All pain and fear will be wiped away. All things will be made new. And sin and evil will be no more.